0: Welcome back this afternoon, and uh, sorry to throw things off, you all have rearranged things to listen to me again. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> but uh, what I want to do is um, talk about singing this afternoon, specifically take a look at what the early church did. Why do we practice what we do? Kind of we'll take a look at internal evidence, external evidence um, of what the church did for singing. You know, God, He has blessed us with the gift of song, and we've we've been blessed to be able to sing just in general, but we've done it today and are worshiped unto Him. When it comes to singing, there are some that are better at it than others, but it's still a gift. It's a gift from God, and as such, we've been singing through the years about all kinds of things. We've been singing when we've been happy. We've been singing when... Uh, we've been sad. Singing tells story. It, it expresses joy. It expresses sorrow. It expresses love. It expresses praise, as we've done today. And so, with this blessing of song, God wants the church to use it for His glory and praise in our worship unto Him. And so, the purpose of our study this afternoon is to examine how the church uses singing in worship. And as we begin our study this afternoon, I want to talk about these New Testament scriptures that actually mention singing. And uh, music in the, in the New Testament was actually used on several different occasions. It was, it was used for funerals, it was also used for pleasure, and it was also used uh, for worship, depending on where you read it within the scriptures. Um, When the New Testament specifically mentions music with instruments, it is actually used 44 times in the scriptures. And uh, and when it's used 44 times, when referring to to instruments, it's either under the umbrella of it being used at a a funeral, or it was used for pleasure or like a celebration of when instruments were used uh, when singing in the New Testament scriptures. So, for example, you have here in Matthew chapter 9 and verses 18 through 23, there's this this ruler whose daughter had died and he approached Jesus because he had faith that Jesus would be able to bring his, uh, his daughter back to life. And so Jesus went and verse 23 says here, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And so we have uh, an example of music in the New Testament scriptures, but with instrumental music here in the setting of being a funeral. There is another example of music that's used for a joyous occasion told by Jesus when when he taught the prodigal son how he came back home. And what happened after that prodigal son came back home? Well, Luke 15, 25 says that there was music, there was dancing, there was a celebration because the son came back home and changed his mind for the better. There are allusions to heavenly music in the New Testament scripture. And I'm a little behind, but there's music that uh, allusions to heavenly music um, when it comes uh, to The New Testament's uh, writing about things like, for example, the book of Revelation. There's a trumpet that is used as a means to kind of signal something uh, within the book. There are also seven angels and there's seven trumpets. If you're writing notes, write down Revelation chapter 8 and verse number 6. And they successively blew on them. Um, Again, Revelations 8 and 9 and also chapter 11. But in Revelation 5 and verse number 8, John sees these 24 elders. And they're, they're falling down before the Lord, and they're each holding a harp. And along with these seven bowls of, of incense, and we find this in Revelation 14, beginning of verse number 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and one could learn that song, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And so we have this picture of this kind of music in heaven as John sees in it and as he writes about But. What I want us to understand, is when we see these references in the book of Revelation regarding music and using instruments, they do not, in those references in the book of Revelations, provide any command or any example or any necessary inference about the church coming together for worship. We have to understand that key idea when we see passages like this, even in the book of Revelation. And so having said that, this kind of provides a good transition now for us to consider music specifically when it comes when the church assembles together for worship and how it is to be used in the church assembly. And uh, don't worry about writing all these down because we're going to look at every single one of these passages and every single one. These are pretty much all, I believe, nine references that the New Testament consists of when it specifically mentions music in a congregation setting. And so let's begin with the first one, Acts chapter 16 and verse number 25. So for this, this is a looking at Paul and Silas were at, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I will say this, these are two Christians being together. This is not a worship assembly. But they were in prison. Yet they're found to be singing hymns to God. And we have no way of knowing what hymns they were singing or what words, but we do know that their hymns and their singing, that they were directed to God. We do know that. He was the object of their singing and they're praying on that night. Another observation about this particular circumstance that Paul and Silas were in, was that it is okay to sing to God outside of public assembly for worship. It is absolutely okay. In fact, I greatly encourage that with every one of us. You can sing praises to God while you're driving along in the car. You can sing while you're gathered with your family. You can sing while you're caring about at your day. You could kind of do like me and break out in, in uh, karaoke Tourette's at, at work and have to apologize later on. But it's, it's a, you talk about a mood booster. It really brightens your day, especially when you could sing a spiritual song or a praise to God during your day. It does something for you. And I can imagine it was helping Paul and Silas as they were being held in prison that night. And so that's what we know from Acts 16 and verse 25 when it comes to Christians singing. Let's move on to another passage, and this is found in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 9. It says, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So in the context that where Paul is writing, or yeah, Paul, he's expressing that uh, now there's something major that's changed. Now Jews and Gentiles have received the grace from God and have the ability to sing praises together. They could do that together. And so he actually quotes David here. But there's this idea of these two groups are really multiple people at once singing together. And he actually quotes um, David from Psalm 18 and 49 regarding singing to the name of God and specifically talking about now the Gentiles could join in that action where before it was only the Jews. Now Gentiles have that same privilege of doing just that. And so that's our observation from Romans 15 and verse 9 when it comes to Christians singing. There's a singing with others. We now move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 of singing with Christians and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul here was uh, discussing what was to be done in the church assembly so that there would be edification within the church assembly and absolutely no chaos whatsoever. And so he says this in verse number 15, he said, I will sing with the spirit and uh, and I will also sing with the understanding. There's another thing that he writes later on in verse number 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a song, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. But then he says, let all things be done for edification. I want to notice here that singing involves understanding what we're singing. That's the first observation that we see from this passage. So we concentrate on the words, we concentrate on the meaning of the song as we sing it. Sometimes it's a bit difficult when trying to pick up the words or the meaning of a song when a song is kind of new, because at that time we're kind of learning how the song goes uh, uh, notes-wise and melody-wise. But later on, naturally, we'll begin to understand the words and the meaning of the word, of that song as we learn more of it. But at other times, it is possible to sing a song and completely miss the meaning of what you just sang. And so music in itself is not enough to glorify God. But it's the meaning of that song that's just as important. There's another thing here that's mentioned by Paul as we gather here, and that is he loses the fact that the church comes together for worship. And as one congregation, they have the teaching from God's word, they pray together, but they also sing together as a congregation. Throughout the scriptures, you will never find a soloist, you will never find choirs in a setting of a church assembly gathered for worship. You won't find that. Well, that's all we really see from this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Moving on to a couple more verses used in Scripture regarding Christian singing, and that is found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, and then we'll consider Colossians 3.16. I'm going to kind of group these because... They kind of have a similar um, meaning. And we're gonna gather some insights from these two passages. Ephesians 9, 15, uh, 5, 19 says, uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Then he says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There is the one thing I want to kind of notice or draw from these two passages is that we are commanded to sing as a church or as a congregation. We are commanded to sing. There's a and there's no out with that. The passage in Colossians tells us that singing, well, that's a form of teaching. And it's also a form of admonition. And so we are to deduce from this that we are not just merely making musical sounds when we sing. A person could no more be spiritually edified by just musical notes than he can by just the words of a language that he doesn't understand. And so Paul dealt what this actually already, as we've already seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But Paul said our music should be such to kind of create an understanding on the part of those who are involved. And so this implies words, not just sounds within music. And the second thing that I want to notice here is that we can't just sing anything that we want to in, in, in worship. It is limited to what we could see. Paul mentions we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I looked at all kinds of, of scholars and, and commentators about if there's a difference between a psalm and a hymn and a spiritual psalm, some say yes, same, some say no. It would, if you say yes, if there is a difference, I guess today we would liken it to, in our psalm books that we sing from, we have hymns. And then we have songs of the southern gospel kind of uh, nature. And we also have songs of like a contemporary nature. Kind of those differences. So if you were to say those are three different things, I guess you could relate it to that. But they all share one thing. And that one thing is that these songs bring our minds to spiritual things like God and Jesus and heaven and love for one another and the church, and you could go on and on. In fact, we are told to sing to the Lord within these two passages here. And so, from that, it eliminates secular music. We can't just sing anything we want. Another, a third thing I wanna notice about these verses is that they indicate the entire congregation is to participate in the singing. You have this term, one for another, <clears throat> or one another part of me, in both of these passages, and it's a reciprocal meaning, meaning, uh, meaning that it represents kind of an inner exchange between me and you as we sing together. That's that's what it means. There's another and fourth thing that to notice about this, and this is about the term for making or meant to make melody. It is from the Greek word of solo. And there is a history to this word, and uh, sometimes the meaning of a word could change throughout the time, and that's exactly what happens with the word solo. And We have to understand what this word means at the time of when Paul wrote it. It was sometime between the year, about 900 and maybe 330 B.C., somewhere in that range, Solo, the word solo carried the basic meaning of to touch sharply or to move by touching or to pull or to twitch. And so solo was used of twitching the carpenter's line as to kind of leave a mark, like like you've got a chalk line and you pull that line and and you've left a mark. It could uh, mean something like that, but solo could also be used to convey the sense of plucking the strings of an instrument. So that's what it meant before the cross, between 900 and 330 B.C. Fast forward through time now, till after the cross. And you arrive at the time when the New Testament was being written. And scholars acknowledge that the fact that the meaning of solo had actually changed. And let me give you a few references regarding this. Thayer says about this word solo, he says, and I quote, In the New Testament, solo signifies to sing a hymn, to celebrate the praises of God in song. Let me reference someone else, W.E. Vine. Another great scholar on words said this. He said the word solo originally meant to play a stringed instrument with the fingers or to sing with the accompaniment of of a harp. Later, however, and in the New Testament, it came to signify simply to praise without the accompaniment of an instrument. In the exe- uh, exegetical uh, dictionary of the New Testament, balt and Snyder says this, they write, in the New Testament, solo always refers to a song of praise to God. Now, seeing those references, we understand The term had changed over the years. And if Saul did retain some association of a plucking while Paul was writing this letter to these brethren, the instrument would have to be identified by the text, would it not? Wouldn't you think? So based upon that, another author, F.F. Bruce, says... He made this observation that the melody of which Paul is principally concerned is the melody of the heart, which accompanies the vocal singing. So the heart, well, that's the spiritual instrument of this context. There is no mechanical instrument implied in Paul's teaching. And as we've seen so far with Christians or with church assembly, we don't see this type of, of, uh, of, of music, of instrumental music. And we're going to progress our study and then we'll come to the conclusion at the end of this. And that's all I'm really going to say about instrumental music in our study. I want to kind of keep it down to what did the church do as we progress on. We have Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, which comes to our, our next passage when it comes to Christians and music. And... Uh, It says here, Hebrews 2, verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Now, the writer of Hebrews, when he writes this, he's actually quoting from David. And the passage is from Psalm 22 and verse number 22. Now, the speaker in this passage, if you look at the context of of Psalm 22, was talking about the Messiah. So this passage is the Lord, about the, Ma- the Messiah and prophecy. And so, because of that understanding, some have argued that this was actually fulfilled, this passage or the prophecy, when Jesus, uh, when He sung that hymn, with the disciples there at the Passover feast, the very night where, where He would be betrayed, that they sung that hymn after that Passover feast, just be- actually before He instituted the Lord's Supper. So most agree, this is this is that. And that's pretty much all we know about this. So this has nothing to do with with the assembly of the church. But yet it is a reference to singing in the New Testament scriptures. Hebrews 13 and 15. We find this. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. This giving of of thanks from the fruit of our lips, that's in reference to us doing that through our voice in singing. That can involve that way. And so that's another passage. We find another passage here in James 5 and verse 13 regarding Christian singing, where it says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And again, we find that feeling a certain way. In this case, He's saying, if you're in a good mood, sing. Sing about God's goodness. Sing about heaven. Sing about the love of, of Christ. Sing. Verse 4 in song. And that was a quick little rundown that, that, we, that we made in observation of all those and to kind of bring everything together, when it, when, well, what we've seen from these passages. We've examined regarding Christians and the church singing of uh, that they're to do just that, they're to sing and to sing together as a congregation when the church assembles for worship and our songs should take our minds to spiritual things so that we can lift each other up and praise and honor the Lord while we do so. And that is the gist of our conclusion of all these passages that we've seen regarding music or singing and Christians. Now, in in addition now to the inspired word, there are historical references that speak to the practice of how the early church sang as they assembled for worship. I wanna say this as a disclaimer before we move on. When we reference external evidences, and even in our study, we do not place those opinions of men or observations any higher or at any level than what we've seen in the Holy Scriptures. All I'm doing is referencing what other men have observed the early church doing and seeing if they did what what we've seen within the Scriptures. And so, having stated that, the first description of Christians coming together that's actually outside of the New Testament scriptures, it actually comes from a Roman governor whose name was Pliny the Younger. And uh, he observed the practice of the other church and wrote it in about the year 110. And this is his observation. And you'll notice he is very doubtful this man's a Christian because of his language um, and his observation. But he says, affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath. What we see is that he sees a group of people coming together and they're singing, And these alternate verses... Um, it could kind of be where you have a leader. Maybe before there were songbooks books back in the day, you would have a leader who would sing a phrase and then the congregation would repeat that phrase. And you would have this reciprocal kind of thing going on during the song. And that seemed to have been a style of singing back then. And so that's one thing that we notice from Pliny the Younger regarding them coming together. You have another um, in his commentary on Psalm 65. You have Eusebius, uh, Eusebius who says this about the church. He says, throughout the world in cities and villages and in the country, in all the churches of God, the people of Christ who have been chosen out of all the nations, send up not to the native gods, nor to demons, but to the one God spoken of by the prophets. He says hymns and psalmody with a loud voice so that the sound of those singing can be heard by those standing outside. And how can that be done? it can only be done with a large group of people or with a group of people singing together. And that's what we see from his observation. It takes my mind back to When mom and dad would take us to the to the sulfur meeting, if you've never been there, they've got this tabernacle just out out in the open and around there, just a surrounding neighborhood. And when you have hundreds of people gathered there for worship and singing together, all the neighbors could hear. I imagine he would be able to make that same observation with the church coming together to hear that sound of those singing Together, And so that's what we know His, um, about the, the church where they assemble for worship and how they sing together as a congregation. And I'm just kind of kind of leave it at just those two observations from external sources. But singing in the church is a wonderful thing. There's a reason why God commanded for the church to worship him in song. If I were to brainstorm, I would say singing brings people together, doesn't it? Singing unites us. Singing creates emotions within us. Singing touches our hearts. Singing creates an opportunity for us to praise Him. And it doesn't matter if you're good at it or not. Just sing. And sing from your heart. And sing praise to him. That's really all that matters to God, is when you do that. What a wonderful privilege we have to be able to do that every time we come to worship, don't we? It's not because the leaders of the congregation have decided, well, this, we've had the tradition of always singing, so people like singing, so this is what we're going to do. No. But God blessed us with the gift of song, and he says, I want you to praise me in that. And it's a beautiful thing. And so I hope that what we've seen in the New Testament scriptures, in regards to Christians and the church coming together to sing, uh, this is uh, it maybe give you some ammunition of why why don't you guys use instrumental instrumental music? Well, let's go to the scriptures and find out. We're just trying to follow the pattern of the early church, so that we could be well pleasing to God. So I leave these with you. Again, I hope you've been edified in our study this afternoon. And again, that God has been glorified through the teaching of his word. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at